Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon at Fountain City Church. We hope that you are blessed by this message today. If you'd like to learn more, you can check out our website at fountaincity.org. All right, everybody good? All right, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to preach fast. Not short, fast. You see the difference? You got to get your ears ready. As you're turning, when we go down to, um, to do water baptism, some of you don't know what we're doing. Everybody know where the rapids are? Go to the rapids. If you go to the rapids, if you don't know where the rapids are, hop in somebody else's car with them, uh, somebody you know, preferably, and go down there. In fact, can I encourage you, instead of us having uh, 150 cars show up and look for parking spaces in the same area, um, perhaps carpooling would be a good idea for those of you who can pull it. Um, lastly, for those of you who are being baptized, I am buying your lunch right after, if you want to do that. There's not a great place to change clothes, so let's get creative. Let's figure it out. Um, we're adults. We can do this. All right. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be reading in verses 25 through 33. Let me recap a little bit of what we talked about last week. Uh, last week, we began talking about how Christian marriage is meant to work. How many of you feel like the Lord is really depositing some stuff in you just listening on how marriage is meant to work in the body? Amen? Um, and so Paul wrote to us that both husbands and wives, that we are called to submit to each other, he calls it mutual submission. That both of us are called to actually learn how to yield and surrender our lives to one another. And within that mutual submission, we're called to relate to one another in ways that mirror Jesus and the body of Christ, the church. It's a really beautiful kind of profound announcement that when you and I walk in marriage, when my covenant with Chrissy Collins, the way that I walk it out, that people ought to be able to look on my marriage and see the redemptive work of Jesus in the church. That They should see the way that the church yields to Christ and the way that Christ is willing to lay down his life for the church. And that's precisely what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, we also spent some time talking about... Um, Christ as the head of the church and husbands as the heads of wives and bringing some nuance into how we understand that. Because sometimes I know, ladies, that sounds like very scary language, particularly if there's a guy you don't really trust or you're not sure that it's safe to submit to. And Jesus calls us into this high thing of marriage to understand the role of what it looks like to lead our wives and wives, vice versa, what it looks like to submit to your husband's. Um, and so if you weren't with us, I just want to encourage you to go back and listen. I'm not doing a great job of even condensing that right now. Uh, today we're going to read in verses 25 through 33, and we're going to do the miraculous work of being done in 44 minutes, okay? Um, 42 minutes, forgive me. <laughs> um, so I'm looking at the clock as I go. Um, let's read in verse 25 together. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. You know, we're sitting here this morning as a people who were bought and redeemed by the death of Jesus of Nazareth. 2,000 years ago, you guys know the story, Jesus ascended a hill called Golgotha with a cross, a cross braced against his bloodied shoulder, his back ripped open by whips, 
His head split from where the thorns were cracking his skull. His beard ripped from his face by enemy oppressors. And he's, he climbed up onto the top of this hilltop. They forced steel spikes through his hands and his feet into the wooden beam that would lift him so that everyone could see his shame and his nakedness. And the scriptures tell us that he did that for the whole world. You and me included. Isaiah 53, 5 tells us that he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities and the punishment that brought us peace was put on him and by his wounds were healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way and the Lord has laid on him all of our iniquity. It was that sacrifice that swallowed up our sins, and hear me, it's that image that Paul draws on when he says, husbands, love your wives just like Christ. It's that image that Paul is evoking when he says, this is what it's actually like to be a husband. Now, we can't separate that reality from what God calls us to as husbands. It's not just loose involvement. It's not just a quick turn on and a, a girl that you're hot to like marry so that you can make babies with. Hear me. It's an absolute commitment that will cost you everything. This is the picture of the gospel. This is the picture of who Christ is and what it means to be a husband. Ladies, as challenging as the notion of submission to your husband sounds, Paul writes that the counterbalance to this type of love and surrender and honor is a husband who is willing to give himself up for his wife. That's the counterbalance to submission. Why in the world would you trust yourself to submit to a man except that he is the kind of man who is willing to lay himself down for you? Now, now this is key, guys, that the comparison of husbands with Jesus makes some pretty stout demands on how we approach marriage. It demands that we go first. How many of you are husbands in the room today? Would you lift your hand? Look at me. This, this contrast demands that as a husband, you go first. You're never waiting around to see how your wife responds before you see how you're going to respond. It's the invitation for you and I to go first. Paul writes that while we were still sinners, steeped in sin and brokenness, Christ died for us. 1 John 4 says, it's not that we loved him, but he first loved us. The declaration of the gospel is that God loves us when we are unlovable. Like long before we ever choose to submit to him. His love is preemptive because God himself is love. And husbands, we are called to be preemptive in our love for our wives. In marriage, we are called to become love. Not reactive not just responsive, we're called to be the initiators. And so the first thing that we see pop out of Ephesians chapter 5 at us is that Jesus gave himself to make the church holy. Now, I don't know about you, I see two things kind of pop up to me here really quickly. Firstly, is that Jesus gave. That Jesus gave himself. You know, the primary role of every single husband is first and foremost to be a giver. He's meant to overflow with generosity for his bride. Our primary role as men is to be the giver and our wife the receiver. Jesus gave himself. He gave himself. 
For God so loved the world that he gave. This is who God is. And when you and I as husbands, when we learn this art of giving of ourselves purely, we are reflecting the glory of God in our marriages and people can see it. But secondly, Jesus is looking for a bride to make holy. Now listen to that language. He's not looking for a bride who is holy. He's making his bride holy. Interesting, right? That's not how I think this would read. I would think it would read that he is looking for a bride who is already holy, and it says that he is making his bride holy. Ephesians 1.4 says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy in his sight. Listen to that. That word holy means that we are clean and that we are living from a pure and undivided heart. We're holy. We're set apart. I don't know how many of you today, you're just saying, Lord, I want to be holy. Like, I want to learn what it is to walk in holiness. That means the, the Holy Spirit has access to come and cleanse every part and unite all those places in your heart that have been fractured through pain and sin and brokenness. This is the work of the Spirit in our lives. Our faith is built on this singular foundation that while I was broken and sinful and an enemy of God, Christ died for me like I was his friend and his bride. And this is the story of every single person in this room who's called on his name. Maybe you're growing to understand like how big that is and what a massive issue that is for you. But hear me, that is exactly what God has done for each and every one of us. He became a sin offering for us that you can become the righteousness of God in Christ. Now that may be a revelation to you. For some of you, perhaps you don't actually believe that God has called you to make you holy. You just want to get saved so you can change the stamp on you. And Jesus says, I've actually come to transform you. Right? The picture of New Testament gospel work is that Jesus comes to dwell in you, that you become the habitation of the Spirit of God. Not just that you got forgiven so that you can move on and keep doing whatever you want. That you become a fitting dwelling place for the glory of God. He died to make you like him. And Paul says that he does this by washing us with water through the word. Interesting. How does he make me holy, Paul? He, he does it by washing me with water through the word. Now, Jews knew all about this. If you go into Orthodox communities where they have purity rituals and purity rites, I've got people in this room who can tell you more about that than I ever could. Um, they would go through washing rituals to meet a criteria of purity, right? Hands and feet and utensils and dishes and cups and sacrifices. There are even these interesting moments where Jesus gets in trouble with the Pharisees because they don't go through all of the prescribed washing rituals in Jewish culture. And here we are. If something was going to be used, the reality was it needed to be cleaned. But what do you use to wash away sin? It's not like I'm washing dirt off the outside of a cup. I'm washing away something that is intrinsic and integral to who I am. It is something that is so interwoven. It's like a monster on the inside drowning me every single day. That is the nature of sin. And he says that he is washing that away with the water of the word. The word of God. Spoken. Now, if you look at this passage, depending on where you're from in the church, you have very different ideas about what he's talking about. 
The Reformed Church declares that this is about the authority of the Scriptures, that this book is going to save you. Hear me. This is the authoritative Word of God that reveals Christ, but this book in and of itself does not have power to save. Now listen, in that same breath, my charismatic brothers and sisters in the room say that it's the authority of the prophetic rhema word. But that rhema word bends and kneels to Jesus. Because prophecy is the spirit of Christ. It's not detached from who he is. It yields to him. And you know that we prophesy in part and we hear in part, but when we see him, everything will be perfected. See, I, I believe that this is a declaration of Christ himself. That we are washed through the water of the word. The same word that John chapter 1 says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and he was God and he was with God in the beginning. And by him all things were made, everything in heaven and on earth and under the earth. It's the word who is Christ himself. This isn't a declaration that I can be cleansed just by the scriptures. It's not a declaration that I'm cleansed just by the prophetic rhema word on a Sunday morning detached from the history of God and the earth. It is a declaration that Christ Jesus himself is the spoken word of God who comes and is empowered to cleanse us. As Malachi says that he is a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. He's the only one who can cleanse He's the only one. He is the one pure enough to clean me, and he is the substance of my cleansing. He comes to wash me, and he is the water by which I am washed. And I can't help but in this moment to see the picture of baptism. Now, scholars would disagree with me, at least some of them, on whether or not this points to baptism. But I just see the picture of Jesus washing. Don't you? I imagine him plunging his bride into the waters of grace and forgiveness into what some of you will do today, into his death and burial and resurrection. And as the chorus says, the only thing that washes away our sins is the blood of Jesus. That's it. We are being washed by Christ himself who makes us holy. And hear me, if you're here today and perhaps you have grown up in church and you have heard sermons a million times, but your life is not surrendered, Jesus is not waiting for you to be holy, to come to him. He loves you and calls you to come to him right now as you are, even as a mess. And some of you are a mess. In fact, I would say all of us are a mess. So get to running. He's not waiting on you to get cleaned up and pure before you come to him. He says, come on. The way to get clean is to come to me. Don't wait till you can scrub off the little pieces you think and do your best. It is my work to make you clean. There's a beautiful story in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, if any of you like to read C.S. Lewis books, uh, where Eustace is trying to scrape off the dragon scales that he has become. And he tries and tries and bloodies himself but cannot change who he is. And Aslan, the Jesus figure in the story, shows up and in one swoop says, I can clean you, but it's going to hurt. And he says, oh, okay. And it says with one swoop, Aslan cuts the skin of this dragon off and there's Eustace in his transformed self. And he plunges him into the cool waters of baptism and feels himself transformed. Often we think it's our job to pull the scales off so that we can come to him. And he says, I'll do it. I'll do it. 
You're just going to bloody yourself up. You're going to make a mess. Come to the one who knows how he has formed you and shaped you because he is reforming and reshaping you, not into the image of your old self, but into the image of his son, Jesus. Jesus actually exposes Christ in Stephen Blankenship. He's not just trying to get you into a better version of Stephen Blankenship. That guy's dead through faith. It's Christ in you. That's what he's exposing. And only his hand can carve that. Only his hand can expose that. Secondly, he presents us to himself as a radiant church. What does a radiant church look like? Paul writes that it is without stain or wrinkle or blemish. It is holy and it's pleasing. Now, maybe those aren't terms that you'd use to describe yourself. Holy and blameless. Maybe stained and wrinkled and blemished sounds a little more fitting to your ears when you think about yourself. But Jesus will not have his bride looking like that. No. Brides come to their weddings not filthy, but clean. The bride wants to be presented beautifully. And Jesus isn't leaving anything up to chance. He wants to present you like that to himself. Holy and blameless. You know, in a wedding, it is usually the father that created and raised and shaped the bride that presents her to the groom. But in this wedding, Jesus is both the one to create and shape you, and he is the groom who receives you. Everybody, I know that there's a distraction, and I have no idea what it is. We good? All right, stick with me. Ignore the uh, librarian Jesus in the back, okay? He's wonderful. Ignore him. I have no idea what's going on. God help us. You with me? Sweet. Okay. I want to point out the language that Jesus presents you to himself. Do you see it? You hear how weird that language is? You ever read the Bible and your ear catches something and you didn't think about it and then it's, it kind of gets paused on something? He's presenting you to himself. Uh, in, in a wedding, who gives you away, ladies? Your father. It's the, it's the one who has created you and raised you and shaped you. That's the bride, or that's the one that presents the bride to her groom. But in this wedding, the scriptures say that Jesus is both the one who creates and shapes you, and he is the groom who receives you. Do you see the picture? Nothing's left to chance. He is the one who custom fits you for who he is, making you to be, and then he receives you with such delight it's like he's never seen you. He's involved in the beginning and the process, and then he receives you as the most beautiful gift. This is the nature, this is the beauty of Jesus, that he chooses you before you are choosable, and he promises to make you all that you are not and cannot be in your own strength, and he does it by himself. It's him. And hear me, men and women, this is all of us. And I don't know about you guys in the room, but I will work awfully hard to try to be something that God wants to give me freely as a gift. It's called legalism. So I'm going to try to expose effort and earning to get to God instead of receiving the gift of his presence. And listen to the intensity of this radiance. Zero stains, no wrinkles, blemishless. 
Does that fit anyone in here? No, it doesn't fit me. Zero stains, no wrinkles, blemishless. Stains represent my sin. The things that I've done that cling to my life and weigh me down. These are the decisions that I've made to walk away from God. Jesus says, I can take care of that. Some of you are in here today and you have stains on your soul. You carry with them with you everywhere you go. Jesus says, I am powerful enough to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Rank, wrinkles have to do with, uh, not wrinkles, wrinkles have to do with age and wear and tear. This is the stuff that has worn you down and worn you out. Do any of you feel weary? Maybe weariness of soul or apathy or exhaustion has set in. Jesus says, I can make you forget all that. All the things that you have endured in previous seasons, I can cause you to forget even that and heal your soul. Blemishes have to do with the things that we can't control. They're the things that we're born with or that are around us that we never made a decision for. And they make us feel unusable or unattractive to the Lord and his people. But Jesus says, I am the sacrifice that pays for your perfection. I'll take care of it if you'll trust me. Friends, where the labels on us were once stained and wrinkled and blemished, Christ Jesus writes, holy and blameless. Now, I don't know which of these labels you feel like you carry in your own self today. Maybe you feel stained or wrinkled or blemished. The promise is the washing work of Jesus says you are holy and blameless even before you've done anything. Dang. What other business deal works like that? What other deal? I bought a house and somebody else still owns it. That's how stuff works in the world, right? Like I paid for it and somebody else is still theirs. And Jesus says, I've paid for you. And I have washed you. And I give you the full rights of inheritance as my son or my daughter now. You don't have to wait. Charles Spurgeon writes it like this, since the church is not fit for Christ by nature, he resolved to make her so by grace. He could not be in communion with sin, therefore it must be purged or washed away. Perfect holiness was absolutely necessary in one who was to be the bride of Christ. He purposes to work that in her and to make her meet to be his spouse eternally. And the great means by which he attempts to do this is this, that he gave himself for her. Friend, if you don't know that love, Jesus invites you today, not tomorrow or next week, not next month. He invites you today to come to him and surrender yourself to him, to be washed and forgiven and set free long before you get it right. Some of you have been working awfully hard to get to him, and he says, I'm coming to you. Will you surrender your life and trust me? And Paul says, that is what a husband is meant to be like. That right there. Verse 28 says, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies, because he who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Listen to that. In the same way. He says, in the same manner that Jesus lays down his life for us, I am called to lay down my life 
for my wife. Now, this preach is so nice to couples that are in love and live on cloud nine and just came back from their honeymoon. It is a different kind of message to hear when you feel like you're going through hell in your marriage. <laughs> an amen. We got an amen on that one, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I'm sorry, I'm just playing. I think Paul realizes that that's the reality. Because he loops back to this common image to depict why this is so important. He says, remember that you and your wife are one flesh. Right? Like it's easy to honor one another when everything's going well. What about when it goes sideways? What about when your wife is bitter toward you or she's angry or she's frustrated? That's never happened to most of you guys, I'm sure. Uh, it's just my isolated experience. And in that moment... I have to make a unique set of decisions. Am I going to be faithful to what it is that God has called me to when I feel defensive and I want to isolate and I want to push that woman away? It's in that moment Paul says, remember, you're one flesh. The husband's the head, the wife is the body. And as useless as a head is detached from a body, it is unthinkable for a husband to make decisions that do not love and care for his wife because she is his body. It's suicide. Hear me, husbands. That thing that feels so reasonable when you are frustrated and upset is suicide to do. It is severing off your body from the thing that you are. On the contrary, Paul says just like we feed our bodies when we're hungry and clothe our bodies when we're cold and rest our bodies when we are weary, we are called to love our wives as our own bodies because we're one thing. We're one thing. Husband and wife, you are one thing. J.D. and Rachel, you're one thing. One. One. One thing. Daniel and Tori, you are one thing. You're not two things. You may feel like it because you're vastly different in every single way, right? But you're one thing. You're one. Stephen and Jordan, one thing. And so the way that we make decisions in the midst of our conflict and crises has to reinforce what it is that God has called us and made us to be. One thing, even when I feel like two things. You know, years ago when we were, um, many of you guys know, when we were trying to move to work in Turkey, my little girl uh, was having some issues. She was diagnosed with some trouble. Um, I still had this thing in my head that just thought, if I just push and get us to Turkey, everything's going to be fine. Like, I was thinking very irrationally. And it was because my ego was at stake. I had heard from the Lord. And now something rose up. And I don't know what to do with this. I was walking the backyard, and I felt like the Lord said, Grant, you are misdefining faith. You think faith is ignoring what is happening and continuing to push. And I tell you that faith is trusting me with what's happening, and actually learning how to follow me inside of that. That's faith. It's not ignoring things. Sometimes in our charismatic theology, we say, I shouldn't say that. I can't say that word, or I can't. You got a cold, and you're like, I can't say that I got a cold, because that means that I'm going to have a cold. Well, you already have a cold. <laughs> say that you have a cold, and then like take some medicine and go rest. <laughs> That's not unfaithful. Hear me. Hear me. Because some of us have been deeply rooted in that kind of mindset. That's baloney. If you're walking around bleeding out and you're like, I'm not bleeding out. I'm not. You're dying. We got to get you to a hospital. 
That's the same kind of mindset that feeds a way that it, uh, continues to cover over emotional wounds and a busted soul, and you become toxic and just keep like declaring things by faith, but you're not dealing with the issue. That's where a word of faith movement, for me, dissects from faith. I got to actually do the work of, of surrendering this thing that's happening to the Lord, not just pretending it's not happening by what I say. I don't even know where I'm at. Okay. Holy tangent. Today's not the day, Grant. We got to move on. So I'm walking around the yard, and I had been just assuming if we keep pushing, the stuff going on with Nora is just going to work itself out. Like all her struggles and hardship and the things that she's struggling with, that's just going to work itself out. What kind of an idiot? Like I don't know what I was thinking. And the Lord said, Grant, um, it's like you're trying to run a race on a gangrene leg. He said, if you do this, you may be thinking it's for me, but you're going to destroy your family. He said, your wife is going to suffer in silence alone. Your daughter is not going to get what she needs. She's going to suffer in silence alone. And then you'll be able to pat yourself on the back that you did everything you thought you were supposed to go do. But your body is dying. And he made it really clear to me, Linda. He said, Grant, you have become an expert at denying, um, not meeting your own needs, and you've done the same to your family. Because husbands, whatever you do to yourselves, you do to your family. And he said, I need you to learn that to love your, your body is to love yourself. He reminded me of this passage. Husbands, can I give you just a little seed? You can't ever move faster than the weakest person in your family. Not and love them. There are seasons that make demands on us, but hear me. God has called us to be the head. And if you have a broken leg and the head keeps dragging that broken leg through trenches and mud and obstacle courses, even though it may seem noble, you are doing devastation to your ability to run. If you have kids, you can only move the speed of the slowest person in your family. You know, this is a deep relational truth for us, that it is impossible to neglect or disrespect or hurt your spouse without also doing violence to yourself. You're poisoning the cup you drink from when you don't love your wife like Christ. And likewise, when you love her well, you live in the reward of that love. Pastor Miles Monroe, who was going to be with the Lord, used to always say women are incubators. They're incubators. You can give them something. They will incubate it and multiply it and give it back, right? I don't know if y'all have ever heard that sermon. It's brilliant. He says you can actually give a, a wife a house and she will incubate it and make it a home. You can give her a sperm cell and she will make it a baby. She incubates it and multiplies it and give you back a baby. She says you can also give her frustration. <laughs> and she will incubate that and multiply it and give it back. You live in the reward of what you sow into your wife. Some of you are here today and you're like, I do not know why she is so mean-spirited and angry and hateful. And often, men, what we need to do is look in the mirror. She is what you have sown into her. We'll let that simmer for a second. Often... The fruit of what we see in our wives is the seed that we have sown into them. 
what do you want to see? You know, we don't think like this. Usually what happens is our wives hurt us or frustrate us or disrespect us. Very real life. And instead of maintaining that posture of openness and love, my move often is to get defensive and to start isolating myself and get independent from my wife. That, that, is, that is something I have struggled with. Any other men in here can confess. When I get hurt, wives don't point fingers right now. <laughs> Him. <laughs> He's guilty. Um, it's easy in these moments, rather than maintaining this posture of headship, this sacrificial love, to kind of become a free agent. It's easy to just move back into the space where I start making decisions for myself, I defend myself, I isolate myself, I do all kinds of things just to get away from the problem. But hear me, y'all, that is a trap. If you're married, that's a trap. When you hit a fight or something and you move into this isolationism that pushes your wife away, it's a trap. Because the only result of you moving to emotional coldness and isolation is to create a storehouse of pain and contempt for your wife that will destroy you. Are you with me? Okay. Everybody's staring at me like I just killed somebody. When we do that, when I move to emotional coldness toward my wife because she's frustrating me or uh, genuinely hurting me, like some of you guys are just genuinely hurt, like your wives have been selfish and impetuous and angry and they've hurt you. I have to fight through the trap of moving towards isolation and emotional coldness. Now hear me, some of that is the fruit of what's being sown in the relationship, but the work of Christ is to build the kind of patience and gentleness and mercy in me that when she doesn't deserve it, I can still give to her Jesus' best. You know, before you know it, if you're in that trap, you're complaining in your head about how she doesn't respect you and understand you. You develop coping mechanisms to shield yourself from the very body that God gave you to shield. You take up golfing or hunting or pickleball, God help us. It's just for Marty. I'm sorry, man. That was just... I was literally writing the message. I was like, I'm writing this for Marty. Um, but, but honestly, think about it. Whatever your coping mechanism of choice is, you just take on more and more and more hobbies and looking for ways to isolate and distance and disengage. And the Lord says, hear me, the Lord is saying to you today that you are sowing hatred and contempt toward yourself when you do that. And you will reap the fruit of that. And the fruit of that is death in your relationship. I felt very strongly that when I was preparing this, that the Lord was speaking very clearly. He says, you are hiding out in emotional isolation man caves. And you've convinced yourself that the only way to stay married is to isolate and become independent. But hear me. The Lord says, you're revolting against me when you abandon your post. Men, you may be genuinely hurt, genuinely wounded. Things may have genuinely happened. You are, you are revolting against the Lord himself when you abandon your post as a husband. And it's time to wake up. Can you imagine what it would be like if Jesus chose to not lay down his life because of your sin? Think of that for a moment. Like it's your sin that made it necessary. 
That, that was the qualifier for Jesus choosing to live this thing out. And likewise, he is calling us to do what's necessary to cover our wives like he covers us. Jesus makes her holy, but he's using your hands to do the washing. That's the gift. It's the work of Christ to make autumn holy and blameless. But man, he's using your hands. That's how he works in us. Verse 32 says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. I'm not going to spend time there, but hear that. Kind of two quintessential, uh, quintessential things that come up in every counseling session I've ever had with a married couple who's bleeding out. She's unloved. He's not respected. And it's just a cycle of pain that self-propagates. She speaks to him like he's a dog, and so he treats her like a dog. And then you go, why does he treat me like a dog? How do you talk to him? How do you treat him in front of other people? Do you cut him down when he's around his friends? I, um, every once in a while, I'll go on Facebook, and you see a wife and husband working their drama out in their feed. You ever seen that? Oh my God. And it is the cringiest and also like watching a train wreck. I'm like, I have to read the whole thread. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> I learn more about what people are going through in my church on Facebook than anywhere else. How many of you know if your husband would just take the trash out when he's told? I'm like, yeah. I wouldn't want to be around that lady. The Proverbs say, like a quarrelsome wife, it's better to live on the roof of your house than to be inside with a quarrelsome wife. Husbands, do not say amen. <laughs> Be careful. We have to wonder what it is that we are sowing into our marriages in the way that we treat and speak to one another. You're sowing something, and it will bear the fruit of whatever you sow. If it's contempt and unforgiveness and hatred, guess what? That's a patch of thorns that will continue to prick everyone involved. He's calling us to figure this thing out, how to love and how to respect each other. Husbands, there are really high stakes on you loving your, your wife well. You know, Paul writes that the way you love your wife is a living prophecy about who Jesus is. And I think it's worth saying for those of you who are in here and you're dating or you're looking for that special someone, guys, be slow and confident who you date and marry. Jesus calls us to the kind of radical, sacrificial love um, that can be leveraged against you as a weapon if you don't have a wife who is submitted to the Lord and willing to yield. Are you hearing me? Your sacrificial love can turn into a sledgehammer against you if she is unwilling to die herself. Now, this is really important. If you're with a woman who is just all about her and every time you yield, she's entitled and there's no mercy or tenderness, beware. Run. I don't care how beautiful she is. I don't care if she is the most beautiful woman in the world. Run. Run your face off. She's a harpy who's going to suck you dry. I said it Sunday morning. We're saying it. Run for the hills. Don't celebrate too much, J.D. You're sent by your wife. Am I right? And, and ladies, 
If he's not willing to lay his life down, run. Run. Now, some of you are in situations right now, you are married to people, and you're not quite sure that they meet that criteria. And the Lord has made you one thing. And you have to trust him with what you have now. And yield your life to this person regardless. The Lord says, I will redeem it. I will redeem it. Now listen, um, in a 45-minute sermon, it is difficult to talk through every circumstance and situation in the room. Are you with me? Because there are always going to be caveats and one-offs, and there are always situations and issues that people are facing in this room that don't sound like they match what we're talking about. But can we yield to what the Word is saying, and then we come to those one-off situations as they come? Does that make sense? Like if you're going, hey, but I do have a specific situation, come and talk. Like our job is to see people formed and shaped into the image of Jesus. The, the word is not a sledgehammer used against us. It is a sword that cuts to my heart and heals me from the inside out. It does both. Men, be slow. Because whether, whether she is submissive and honoring or she is hateful and disrespectful, God calls you to represent him to her. In the same way that he calls wives to yield to their husbands even when they don't deserve it. He also calls you men, to lay your lives down for your wives even when they don't deserve it. Are you with me? Because we're always doing it as an act of worship. It's never about Chrissy, right? It's about Jesus. It's about what Christ has done for me. And so how do we put this to work? Um, and I'm going to have to abbreviate this. Firstly, we give ourselves up for our wives. If you're a man in here and you're married, the first thing that we learn to do is to give ourselves up for our wives. This is the call to every single husband in the room, to come and die. That is the call of what it means to be a husband. It would be one thing if we were asked to die once and go out in some romantic blaze of glory, but God calls us to the daily death of Jesus. How many of you know it'd be easier if I could just go out in this blaze of glory one time, die for my wife, John Wayne style? That's not what happens though, is it? What, what happens in reality is that we loop around the same mountain over and over and I have to die the same death over and over. And I get it. We need to move and, and progress forward. We need to grow emotionally and relationally. We need to do those things. But as a husband, I have to learn to daily deny myself and my preferences and my desires and take up my cross and follow Jesus every single day. In, in marriage, we're called to wake up every day and commit ourselves to loving and serving our wives at an expense to ourselves. The call to being a husband and a father and a leader is the call to die to yourself and what you want. It's a call to live in service to other people. John Tyson writes that true masculinity is the joyful pursuit of sacrificial responsibility. That a man is most fully alive when he is joyfully pursuing the good of others through sacrificing himself. That's what masculinity looks like. Now you may be thinking, but I don't want to be a doormat. Perhaps you are in a situation where your efforts have been taken advantage of. May I remind you, you're giving yourself up for her because Jesus gave himself up for you. That's why. I'm not doing it because she said all the right things. I'm doing it because Jesus paid the ultimate price when I was steeped in sin. 
Wives, you are called to submit to your husbands as to the Lord. But husbands, a woman's trust in you can be measured in your capacity and willingness to give yourself up for her. Hear me. To give yourself up for her. That's what she's looking for. Secondly, wash her with the word. Um, I'm going to abandon these. You know, one of the most powerful things that we have as husbands is the power of our words. It says that Jesus washed us with the water through the word. One of the greatest gifts that I can give to my wife is the power of what I say to her and how I say it and the labels that I pull off of her life by what I clothe her with. I I get to clothe my wife in beauty. Isaiah 61 says of Jesus that uh, he was anointed to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, um, joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. My role as husband is to see where my wife is and to crown her with beauty, to bring joy into her life, and to pray over her and sing praise over her life. I'm, I'm called to clothe her and adorn her in something different than what she's wearing. Like Jesus washing us and changing us and adorning us for the wedding day, my goal, my role with Chrissy Collins is to see where she's at and to be um, attentive enough to stop and to say, hey, what do you need? What's happening for you? Do you know how much I love you? Fellas, your wife should never have to look to any other man or friend or Instagram post to find out who she is or how beautiful she is or what she has to offer the world. If she gets it from you, she's not looking for it anywhere else. Now, look, every woman is, uh, you're you're responsible to be self-controlled and to not go searching for affirmation from other men. You hear me? When you're getting dressed in the morning, you should be asking yourself, who am I getting dressed for? If your husband always sees you getting dressed up for everyone else and not for him, there's going to be an issue in his mind after a while. That's not on paper. Uh, That's you. That's for you. Okay. Where are you getting that affirmation? But men, hear me. Hear me. That Every single one of us is called to adorn our wives with our words. Imagine Jesus walking up to your wife. Would he say to her the things that you say to her? Would he say it how you say it? You know, she belongs to him. You're a steward of someone, someone else's bride, someone else's daughter. Uh, one of the, the primary things I think about with my girls is, you know, I've, I, I used to think this was terrible, but I, I need future sons-in-law to be terrified if that happens. If, if my girls get married, I, I need them to be able to look and see that I'm not to be trifled with. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Do a lot of squinting. Do a lot of squinting. Why? They belong, they belong to other people. And you know what? You, you belong to the Lord. Michael and Olivia, you both belong to each other, but you belong to the Lord. You're stewarding each other for the Lord. And so the way that you treat each other, for Justin and Noel, the way that you treat each other is unto the Lord. And the way that we speak to one another, we are clothing each other in something. And Jesus says... You cannot say anything to them that I don't say to them. What does it look like to be the hands that do the washing as Jesus purifies his bride? 
Last but not least, he says, put her on display. You know, one of the best things in the world is when um, a couple celebrates one another in public. Uh, when a husband can adorn his wife by putting her on display. Some of you ladies don't like that, but I think every single one of us needs that. We need to be talked about in public in a way that is full of celebration. You put her on display. You present her. And for some of us today, we have to realize that this is the nature of Jesus toward us. We have two minutes. I'm over time. Um, can, can I just call you to do something right now? Would you just respond to the Lord? For many of you, when I think back over my life, I stand as the, the wife in this metaphor, receiving all the love of Christ who has laid himself down for me. And there is not a singular moment. There's not a singular thing that I've done to keep myself in him or to have a faith that looks good in any single way. It is always his action toward me, laying himself down, washing me, cleansing me, displaying me. This is the work of Christ. And for some of you today, you don't know that love. You don't know that love. You're listening to it and you're like, I, that is a foreign idea to me. And the Lord says, come and follow me. Let me show you what it's like to submit to my leadership. I will wash you and lay myself down for you and give everything for you. He's already done it, but he requires that we put our faith in him. And so with every head bowed and eyes closed today, if that's you, you're just like, man, I have not surrendered to that kind of love and I want to know this Jesus who is like a husband that lays his life down for his wife. But you just lift your hand and just say, I want to know him like that. I want to know him like that. I want to experience this sacrificial love. If that's you, just lift your hand. We're not going to embarrass you. I just, I want to be able to partner with you and see, to see what it is that God is doing. I see your hand. I see those. Thank you. Thank you, Father. Some of you in here, particularly for our husbands, you're hearing this call to surrender your life. And I have the unique impression that for many of you, you've got these little storehouses of hurt and pain. And those things are keeping you from laying your lives down. And the Lord is calling you to forgiveness and to release, to release the bitterness and contempt you hold toward your wives. Because God has called you back to your post, a watchman on the wall, to care for his bride, to wash her to shape her, to display her. And if that's you and you're just saying, Grant, I need help, man. I'm in the middle of a mess and I just need the Lord to help. I need him to intervene. If that's you, would you just lift your hand? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Would everybody just stand to your feet? Open your eyes. Several of you this morning are saying, Lord, I, I want to give you my life. I want to encourage you that the Lord sees that step of faith. It may feel like a seed, like tiny to you. But the Lord says that there is celebration in heaven over every person who comes to this faith. And so right now, I'm going to pray for you. But hear me. There is no power in just me praying for you. Like that's going to seal everything. This is you surrendering your life and saying, I'm going to follow you. And so if that's you, please come and talk to me right after. But men, would you just all open your hands together? And we want to pray. Husbands, we want to pray that we can step into this high call of God. Lord Jesus, you have called us. You've called us. You've called us to mirror the image of your son Jesus, who lay himself down to make us holy and blameless. 
Father, I pray in this house, Lord, even as we're like at a, at a sprint pace today, Lord, I thank you that you are sealing things in us. God, that where we have been reactive or responsive, Lord, to hurt and pain, you are calling us to be men of action who live in preemptive, initiating love. And Father, we just ask you that you would forgive us, Lord, where we have abandoned our post. Forgive us, Lord, and wash us, Father, where we have gone against your heart, God, where we have surrendered, God, where we've isolated and gone independent. Holy Spirit, heal us and cause us to rise up once again as husbands. Father, we thank you that you've called us to lead holy and blameless marriages, and you're calling us to this holy task. And Father, we devote ourselves to this end, God, that you have made us one flesh. Would you teach us, Father, how to every single day, for every man in here, to yield our lives and our preferences for the sake of our wife. And Father, I ask you, Lord, that people would come to faith as they watch the transformation in our marriages. Lord, come. And Lord, for those who today are saying, man, I, I want to surrender my life. Lord, we look to you and we actually see your hand at work. We see the way that you have sacrificed for us Jesus, you have poured out your love for us, and so we just receive it. Lord, like your bride, we receive your love, and we ask you to come in and perfect your work in us. We thank you that you wash us as white as snow, that you change us and transform us by your power and your word. And Lord, that whatever you start, I thank you that you work in process and you promise to bring it to completion. You start when we're enemies and sinners, and you've promised that we will be your bride, wed to you forever. And I thank you that you're perfecting that in us. Father, we commit ourselves to you in this thing today. And I just ask you, even as we drive down to the river, Lord, the, that revelation of your love would become clearer than ever, that our sins are washed away, and you've raised us up to new life in you. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon at Fountain City Church. We hope that you are blessed by this message today. If you'd like to learn more, you can check out our website at fountaincity.org.